Hello. Oh, what? What was that? <laughs> there was. Well, they got so silent when we walked on stage, too. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Masters of Social Gastronomy. <laughs> See, some of that's how you do it. I'm just gonna stand here and you do the whole intro. So my name is Sarah Lohman. I am a culinary historian, author of Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine. This is my co-host, Jonathan Soma. He is the co-founder of the Brooklyn Brainery, and he does something at Columbia, which he's explained to me multiple times that I don't quite understand. Um, welcome to Masters of Social Gastronomy. Um, just out of curiosity, round of applause if you've been here to our show before. <laughs> nice. Welcome back, old friends. And is this your first time at Masters of Social Gastronomy? Applaud now. Welcome, new friends. So thrilled to meet you. So let me tell you how this is going to go tonight. We do our show in three parts. The theme of the evening is what goes in must come out. So we're doing the whole gastrointestinal tract from mouth to butthole. You're welcome. <laughs> I talk first, and I'm actually going to be talking about paleo humans, uh, a lot about what we know of their diet and how we know it, which has a lot to do with everything from dental records to fossilized poops. Then we're going to take a 10-minute break. That's where you go to the bathroom, you get a drink. And then we don't, we don't usually do this, Soma. Usually we just have a section in the middle where we ramble for a while. But <laughs> we decided to get professional tonight. And we have a special guest this evening. Ooh. Yeah. Our friend Kimberly is coming up on stage. And she is a toilet expert. And she's going to be rocking a brief history of toilets. So I am very excited about that. Yeah, I know. We'll take one more 10-minute break, and then, Soma, what are you talking about tonight? thought you were going to do the whole intro. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, so, not quite. Uh, no, it gets to poop. Uh, the microbiome, gut flora, fauna, stuff like that, probiotics, antibiotics. I'm ready for symbiotics, answers. psychobiotics. I want to know about my gut biome and what I'm doing to destroy it. Yeah, sounds great. Awesome. So, your role in this is just to enjoy yourself, to have some beers. If you're doing social media, you can hashtag us at OMGMSG. That is also our website, OMGMSG.com. And it works right now. And it and works. And I updated it earlier today. And they can sign up for our mailing list there? Probably. Probably. You'll get more information about more shows, but also hop on our Facebook page, which is, I think, Hello MSG. But if you just look at Master Social Astronomy, blah, 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 um, we are going to start posting articles that are relevant to our talks after our talk every week. So that'll go up on our Facebook page. So if you want to know, like, our primary sources or you just want more reading to do, get on our Facebook. We speak here the last Monday of every month. So tickets for our next show are already on sale. Also, we've got a podcast, too. Look at all those uh, episodes. Cute. They were sincerely impressed. They feel like <laughs> I'm a little flattered. We've been doing this for a long time. We've been doing this for a couple years. So there's some really old oldie but goodie stuff up there. But um, one of the nice things about being here at Caveat is they professionally record each one of these shows. So they go up online, on iTunes, on Spotify, on Stitcher, I think, too. And SoundCloud. All the podcast places that begin with S's and iTunes. Um, so on a couple months delay, you can check out the show if you enjoyed it. You can share it with friends. If you missed one, you can catch up there. So that's like the business end of things. What's been going on in your life, Soma? So I thought that you were going to say something a little more frivolous than just that. Do you have any? Can you? Where yeah, were you traveling? Oh, well, you're my slides talk are about after that. yours. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I'm the one who's going to sound like an idiot now when I talk about my life. So... Does anyone here not have an iPhone? 
Okay, yeah, so let's, can we get by round of applause? Who here <laughs> does not have an iPhone? Okay, the quietest, quietest, tiniest sound. So I, d I don't have an iPhone, and I'm constantly ridiculed for it. So last night, instead of working on my talk, I tried to make my phone real fancy. Um, and I think that it looks cool, and it has big icons now, and it's very exciting. And that's the benefit of having an Android, despite the fact that nothing else on your phone works. <laughs> so this is, that's true. Good camera, solid, solid camera, <laughs> night vision. You keep vision. telling yourself that. Yeah, it sucks. My life is terrible. Um, <laughs> but, but when your life is so bad that you don't have an iPhone, but you have a bunch of cats in your apartment, what you can do is put ties on them. <laughs> um, so I took... I was just sitting at home, you know, not working on my presentation, and I thought, what if I used the opposite side of a tie and then made ties for my cats? So I'm not going to buy some bullshit from the store. I'm literally going to make them wear a tie in my apartment. And so that's Stumpy. She's really into it. Hashtag Mondays, smush face, not into it at all. Um, this is Vanilla Bean, who you might remember from last month who uh, is a rescue that's currently in my apartment. He came from under a off-ramp outside of Costco. I caught him with a hot dog, and he needs a home. So he is now fixed. He now has a microchip. He just wants to lay on a your couch all day. And on your lap if it's there. On your lap, yeah, it's true too. You can read books, play video games. All of those things are possible with this cat on your lap. Cute also, guy. he's a, a dude cat. I don't have very many dude cats in my house that aren't like 17 years old, so my he's like huge. My cat's a dude cat, and he's he's actually very <coughs> small, but they're very he's very very friendly, well behaved mm -hmm. too. Um, if they adopt the cat tonight, does he come with the tie? No, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Trying to sell this I gotta, cat. I got I got look look at him. He's super cute. He doesn't need a tie. Um, you can go get your own tie. <laughs> My other cats need ties. Well, you start an Etsy business where you make cat ties. Yes. Great. Except it was really, it's literally just, I used, like, this comes down and becomes like a whole real tie. Oh. So I didn't make, like, I just, it's I just, just for the gram. Just for the gram. And you didn't even edit that in post. You got that in the camera. <sighs> no, just it's like in there. You should be getting some Academy Awards for visual effects with that. No? Almost one. Almost right. one. So you want to know where I travel? Uh, well, you're gonna tell us in your talk. No, no, no. This is oh. my pre-show. Here. Oh, this is your pre-show? Yeah, it's all right. We can go oh back. Oh, God. So I went to Joshua Tree for a couple <laughs> days. The craziest thing is when I got off the plane, it was 40 degrees and raining, and I had just flown in from Cleveland, so I was like, fuck this. But then everyone who lived there was like, no, it's really special. It never rains here. And it poured for two days. And at the end of it, this rainbow came out over Joshua Tree. And I like openly wept because it was so beautiful. So it was really special. I saw a lot of amazing things. But I was there for a specific reason. I was at Coachella. What? No, that's in April. But I was in Coachella <laughs> because there's something else that happens in Coachella Valley that people aren't aware of. Did you know it is the date capital of the United States? No. Yeah. It is where all of the, no, that's not quite true, but 95% of the dates consumed in America are grown in the Coachella Valley, which also sort of extends out into Arizona, but mostly California. The industry started there in the 19-teens. It was huge in like the mid-20th century uh, for date tourism. And they distinguish themselves <laughs> because they have an annual festival this time of year um, that's been going since 1947. It's the date festival. 
and it is historically this sort of bizarre orientalist, yeah, it's an Indio exactly, but it represents, there is a beauty pageant with queens that come from all over the valley, so it's like Indio, Coachella, I can't remember the other towns off the top of my head, Palm Springs, like it's that whole area there. Um, super orientalist historically, super orientalist today. Still going. Some things never change. Um, that stage is is very cool. It was built in, in the late 1940s by a Hollywood stage designer, and they traditionally do a pageant every single night that's from one of the tales of a thousand and one Arabian nights. And um, it's it's a lot to unpack. I'll just put it. And I'm, I'm not talking about my luggage. It is a lot, and I'm still sort of processing it. So I was there because I'm researching a new book. It's called Endangered Eating, Exploring America's Vanishing Cuisine. And I'm looking at foods across America and in different cultural regions um, that are going extinct. So I sought out these particularly rare varieties of dates. And then I'm also talking about it in the context that we have this like, this pageant exists in a time where we also actively have a Muslim ban. So this the um, separation of the mindsets there. So look out for that book. It'll be out in one million years. Because <laughs> that's how long it takes to write a book. So um, Don't do it. No, oh. I figured it out. Okay, oh. so that's it. Oof. Now we're ready to get on to poops. Can you do me a favor? What? Get off the stage. Don't make that ooh sound. It's a good thing. Please put your hands together for our first speaker of the evening, Sarah Lohman of Four Pounds Flower. Thank you so much. Okay. Oops, 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 oops. Uh, so, like I mentioned, I'm going to talk about Paleolithic human beings. What does that mean? Uh, our sort of closest ancestors are Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, which interestingly, in this ancient context, people uh, tend to talk about Neanderthals as not being modern-day humans, but by a round of applause, how many of you have taken a DNA test and found out you have Neanderthal genetics? <laughs> Less people than have androids. You can be proud of that. I'm not shaming you. <laughs> I also have, like, okay, I haven't, it's, my dad does DNA tests. So I don't know the percentage, but I'm also, like, a pretty heavy percentage Neanderthal. Uh, if you don't have a lot of hair on your back, that's a really good signifier that you were Neanderthals, which I also think is a fun fact because there are many theories about why Neanderthals were, uh, went extinct while Homo sapien didn't. And one of the prevailing theories is that it ho as Homo sapiens started to move into the areas where Neanderthal was found, Homo sapiens found Neanderthals sexier and bred them out of existence, essentially. So I can, like, hairless back? Sure, I guess that's what they were into. We're also gonna talk about some older human ancestors who I'm not gonna mention by name. They were multitudinous and diverse, but we're going to look at what Paleolithic humans were eating and how the methods we use today to figure that out. I will tell you that it is difficult to Google search anything related to paleo humans because should you Google, Google paleo, that is no longer what you get. You get um, Halloween apple mouths that are on a paleo blog. So it's also difficult to talk about all of these paleo, there's been a lot of new revelations in terms of human history within the past 15 years. And any time a science blog writes about them, it's always in the context of the paleo diet, which is also kind of frustrating. But you know what? Fucking fine, let's talk about it. We're gonna talk about an actual paleo diet and we're gonna talk about if the idea of a paleo diet today makes any sense. 
The premise of the paleo diet is that we have messed up our bodies and obesity is caused by our agricultural lifestyle. Agriculture uh, has only existed for like 9,000 years approximately. And so the paleo theory says that the stuff that's come about from agriculture, namely carbohydrates like grains and sugar, are bad for us and we should return to an older style of eating. So what was that older style of eating and what do we know about it? This is roughly the what the Paleolithic era means. Um, up until recently, it went from about 2,000 years ago to about 12,000 years ago. Excuse me, 2 million years ago to about 12,000 years ago. That number is now being pushed back because of a fairly recent discovery. Um, this took me a second. So this was discovered in a site in Ethiopia. Um, and these are animal bones with tool marks on them. Um, Ethiopia is a cradle of all humanity. To this day, it is still the most genetically diverse place on the planet. Because think of it this way. Every, every human ancestor comes from Ethiopia. And at different moments in history, different groups of Homo sapiens and Neanderthals and other groups moved out of Ethiopia and into the rest of the world. So the further you physically, geographically get away from Ethiopia, the smaller and smaller that genetic pool comes. If you go closer and closer to the starting point of all humanity, you get all the genetic diversity there is. I think that is just, uh, it, it just like really excites me. It's, it's really fascinating. So that's where all the sites for all the like proto-humans are, uh, the missing links, blah, blah, blah. And at an archaeological dig there, they found mammoth bones that had marks that resembled stone tools. Now this was shocking because the Paleolithic era um, is also known as the Old Stone Age, and that speaks to stone-made tools. But then we found a site that was a million years older than what we had previously thought stone-made tools existed um, with stone tool markings on a mammoth. So this site was discovered about 10 years ago. There's been a lot of research done, and it's pretty well confirmed that these are actual marks made by humans or proto-humans with stone-made tools. And so that pushes tool making back one million years. And this is gonna happen a couple times during this talk. Like with really within the past 15 years, these sort of markers of human accomplishment that have held true for the, a couple hundred years, at least what we believe, have been pushed back by, in this case, a million years. So one of the ways that we know what early humans ate is based on things like this. Things that we find in basically garbage dumps or at cook sites, at early places of human occupation, we find animal bones. And animal bones with tool markings on this usually indicate that you're scraping meat off of bones. So this also led to a theory that was a predominant theory up until about a decade ago that Paleolithic men, Neanderthals, Homo sapiens, ate a primarily meat-based diet because that was all the evidence we were finding. Interestingly, these are all findings that come from different parts of Europe about a million years ago, and these are human remains with the same stone tool marker markings on them. Whoa. <laughs> now, some people have argued, you know, different cultures process their dead in different ways, um, and even in some contemporary cultures, it's customary to um, dismember the body and feed it, uh, feed it to wildlife, essentially, as a way to let the spirit sort of carry on into the world. 
but it's like you find more than one signifier in one place. So you've got the stone markings up over here. Um, this is a skull that had been bashed in, in theory, to cook and then remove the brain. Skulls have also been found with char marks on them because the skin is very thin on our skull, so the bone will actually char. And then this is um, a bone that's not just been broken, it's been hammered with a tool to pull the marrow out. It is pretty well established that um, Paleolithic humans were cannibals. Also, contemporary humans can be cannibals, too, at least up until very recently. These, again, come from sites that are a million years old, so this goes deep into our history. Why humans were eating other humans is unclear. We cannot ask them. We can only look at physical evidence. We know in contemporary culture that there's endocannibalism and exocannibalism. Endocannibalism is when you eat someone you like, usually as part of a funeral rite. Exocannibalism is essentially like revenge cannibalism, where you eat an enemy. So we can only guess <laughs> to the motivations, but one thing that should be in a proper paleo diet is apparently human flesh, so go ahead. <laughs> Another really important marker of human accomplishment is cooking. So this is a cave site in South Africa called the Wunderwerk Cave, and this is the earliest physical evidence we have for humans using fire. This site dates to one million years ago. So pretty big, figuring out fire. Um, here they basically dug down into this cave and looking at all the different sediment layers, went down as far as they could and then found ash, essentially. And so they found ash at a layer that is one million years old. And this is what the ash actually looks like in the Bundaberg Cave. However, again, we have this idea of like, we basically like, okay, yes, a million years ago we got fire. There's a new theory that came out in the last 10 years that pushes back this idea of when we started using fire a little earlier. Now, this is the early phys physical evidence we have of fire. However, when you look at humans, here we are over here, we have really big brains and really small guts compared to other primates. You can tell a little bit here from basically the way our skeletons are shaped and the way our skulls are shaped, but here's a comparison of the human brain against two other primates and then two non-primates. We have really big brains. Big brains take a lot of calories. And one of the things, and big brains take a lot of calories, and a diet of non-cooked food takes really big guts. So our very close cousins, the chimpanzees, spend half of their day chewing, okay? And that's how much time it takes to maintain a brain um, that is, let's say, one half to three quarters the size of a human brain. We spend less than an hour a day chewing. So the big difference between how chimpanzees are eating and how we are eating is that we're cooking our food, which releases more nutrients and allows us to process that food quicker, both through chewing and through then digestion in our guts. Now we have a smaller gut to process cooked food, and a lot more of that caloric energy is it doesn't need to be spent on digesting food. It can be sent to the brain to do brain things. This theory was really developed um, by this guy, Richard Wrangham. It's called the cooking theory, and it basically says that what separated us from other primates, basically our big brain, happened because we can cook food. The earlier theory said that it was more access to meat, but he says it's more complicated than that. Now that we're chewing less, we can hunt more. Hunting takes a lot of time and uh, really doesn't have a payout that often. You don't actually catch an animal every time you go out. So if we started cooking food, that meant we could hunt more, which means we could consume more meat, that it's all connected. 
So one of the arguments against him is, but if this is true, we only have evidence of cooking one million years ago. This needed to happen much earlier in our human timeline for it to be a part of our evolution. And he says, well, here's why I think cooking happened earlier than a, a million years ago. The Honey Guide. So this is a video. We're going to see if it works. Um, turn up the audio if you can. Oh, God. Researchers have long known that people in Africa cooperate with a wild bird called the Greater Honey Guide. The bird shows people where to find bees' nests, which they harvest for their honey. The birds then feed on the wax combs left behind. New research, published in the journal Science, shows that this remarkable cooperative relationship involves two-way communication between humans and a free-living wild animal, which is astonishingly rare in the natural world. Honey guides solicit people with a distinctive chattering call and fly from tree to tree in the direction of a bee's nest, showing their human follower where to go. In turn, listen here as these men from the Jawak people of northern Mozambique make a special honey hunting call, a loud trill followed by a short grunt. It's passed down from generation to generation in this honey hunting culture and works as a signal to the honey guide that a person is looking for bees' nests and willing to follow. All right, that's all I'm going to show you, but if you want to see more, okay. Um, if you want to see more, that's already on our Master of Social Gastronomy Facebook page. So honey guides are not domesticated animals. They are wild animals. And they have evolved to work with humans to get this food they really like to eat. It's amazing. These uh, just I find these birds so fascinating. Um, there's been a lot of research in this, and actually it's a very new revelation that in some parts of Africa the communication goes both ways. Um, if the people who are looking for honey make that special call, it is twice as likely that a honeybird will show up as if they don't. However, honeybirds do still show up because they are tuned into noises of humanity, in particular talking, singing, whistling, and now even things like cars and television. A honeybird will show up and start making that distinctive call. So we have this sort of symbiotic relationship with this bird. Um, chimpanzees love honey, but um, hunter-gatherers in Africa eat about six times as much honey as a chimpanzee. And the reason is because of fire. When they get to a bee's nest, they use they create a fire and use smoke, which confuses um, the bees, basically their sense of smell, and so they don't sting when you smoke out a hive. So why is this important to cooking? Well, obviously we needed fire to be able to gather this honey um, to create this symbiotic relationship with these birds. There are two types of honey guides, one that lays um, eggs in a nest in the tree, one that lays eggs in the nest of the ground. And as we've traced these two different variants of the species backwards, um, a conservative estimate of when these two honey guides split is about three million years ago. So both of these honey birds do this call, do this like call and hunt for humans, and it is innate. It is not a learned behavior. It is an inherited behavior. So for both of them to be able to do that, they would have, their common ancestor had to know how to do it. So this indicates that we may have actually sort of been using fire three million years ago. Maybe not quite that far back, but again, physical evidence says only one million. And this theory says, well, here's something that points to the fact we might have been using fire much longer ago, this really interesting relationship with this wild animal. 
So, but still based on all of this, the predominating theory for a long time was that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens ate meat and they were using fire to cook this meat and we have their bones and they were using stone tools to process this meat. But that starts getting complicated when this site was uncovered in Israel and it is the first known hearth. So this is a stone oven used for baking this site dates back to 300,000 years. And based on the evidence of this oven and evidence of, of skeletons found on this site, um, people were using grain 300,000 years ago. Agriculture, again, only started about nine to 12,000 years ago. So this shows that there was a human reliance on wild gathered grains, notably wild wheat and wild barley. Now, we found evidence for this in other places, too. We <laughs> There's been some amazing um, ways that we're, okay, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that in a second, but basically we can analyze plaque from Paleolithic human beings. So there's a site in northern Spain where they found, I believe, a dozen skeletons of people who are 50,000 years old, and they used gas chro chromatography and mass spectrometry to analyze the plaque. Um, if you want to know more about these two things specifically, Wikipedia is out there for you. But they are both systems that um, analyze for chemical signatures. So they're looking for molecules, ions, and chemical compounds that are distinctive signatures for, in this case, um, plants. It can also identify um, lipids that would come from meat. Um, and in particular, they found starches that are specific to wild wheat and wild barley in people's calcified plaque. So that's a pretty direct way to figure out what people were eating and that as humans in certain parts of the world, we were eating grain long, long, long before agriculture took hold. Um, interesting side note too, this is actually a picture of a 14,000 year old cavity. And again, cavities were thought to only come about with agriculture. Agriculture led to a carb-heavy diet. Before we had a carb-heavy diet, we, in theory, didn't have cavities. Yet, here's a 14,000-year-old person with a cavity. What's even more cool is this is 14,000-year-old dental work, that they actually went in with a stone tool and dug out the decay. Yeah, that hurt like a motherfucker. You're absolutely right. <laughs> but then, I, in theory, his tooth didn't hurt anymore. These are slightly more modern. These are 6,500 years old, and these are actually wax fillings in somebody's teeth. So we were messing with dentistry in, in the paleo era, which is kind of crazy. So we're talking about what foods people are putting in their bodies. We're talking about mouths, how it gets in there. Uh, let's talk about the way out. Here is the oldest poop <laughs> that we have found so far. Who knows what could happen tomorrow? This poop is 50,000 years old. It doesn't really look like a poop. Um, it was found at a hearth site, so essentially like a burn site, um, probably after it was used, someone decided to take a dump and then it became a fossil and here we are 50,000 years later. How crazy is that? Um, this site is also in northern Spain. It's called El Salt. Um, this was discovered within the last decade. It is the oldest poop known. This next photo is only a tiny bit more visceral. It's still 50,000 year old poop, so this isn't fresh, but if you think it's going to weird you out, you should close your eyes now. This is the cross section of the poop. Looks like a poop. Kind of amazing. So this was pulverized and analyzed, again, using those tools looking for different chemical signatures. And what was anticipated based on all of the theories about um, prehistoric man is that this should mostly contain a lot of cholesterols and lipids that would indicate a meat-heavy diet. It did have some of those things, but not in the proportions anticipated. They actually found a lot of chemical signatures that comes from processing different plant materials. So whereas we thought that 
um, paleo humans used to exist on almost an entirely neat diet. It's shaken down to be more like 50-50 or 75 plants, grains, starches, and only 25% meat, which makes a lot more sense when you look at primates today, our closest cousins. Yeah, they hunt, but it's like a pretty rare occurrence. They're mostly eating a lot of leafy greens, berries, things like that honey when they can get it, but again, that's a rare occurrence. So looking at poop has re-led us to think, it, it's, re, it's changed the thinking about what Neolithic human, Paleolithic humans were eating. I also just wanna share with you this American poop. Um, so <laughs> compared to the 50,000 year old poop, this seems insignificant. This came from a site in Oregon, um, and it dates to about 14,000 years ago. Now, what made this poo extremely controversial is that up until this poo, poo was found in 2008, I believe, again, it's all within about the last 10 years, um, is that up until we found this poop, it was believed that the Clovis people had crossed the land bridge from Asia about 12,000 years ago. Suddenly, we have a poop that's 2,000 years older in Oregon. So that, <laughs> since this paper came out, the prevailing theory has changed strengthened by the fact that there's been evidence collected since this poop, um, namely in the Florida, uh, there is a site in Florida that's actually in a lake, someone heard about this, where they pulled out animal bones that also had stone tool markings that were about 14,000 years old. So within the past 10 years, we have pushed back the date of humans' arrivals in North America by about 2,000 years. But considering these sites are in Oregon and Florida, um, we might be looking even further back. Uh, and there is some evidence to suggest human um, occupancy as old as 40,000 years ago, which is very exciting. And there's also now a lot of theories, too, that humans didn't just come over the land bridge, that there was probably an ocean crossing as well, so that there might have been multiple moments where human beings were coming to North America. So it's all super exciting. So based on all the evidence, what did paleo humans actually eat? How should you be shaping your paleo diet to be your fittest, baddest, most paleo self? So they ate a lot of meat, um, including people, so <laughs> go for that. They also ate a lot of mammoth, uh, reindeer, red deer, basically uh, different parts of the world, different um, hooved animals, but a lot of sort of hooved animals. Um, they ate a lot of carbs and starches, though, too, um, in the Middle East and sites in North Africa, Israel, and Iraq. People are eating dates, super ancient plants, super ancient food. Um, legumes, too, beans, wild beans, grass seeds like wild wheat and barley. So these are all things that you shouldn't be doing on paleo. I actually think dates are okay, but I'm not on paleo, so I can't 100% say for sure. But beans and um, grains are considered part of agriculture and are taboo in a modern paleo diet. They were also definitely eating honey, too, so more carbs. And they were eating veggies, and some evidence says maybe even spices or medicinal plants. So... Why should we care? Soma does what have we learned? I'm gonna do why should we care? Two big reasons. Our bodies, we've inherited them from our ancestors. And depending on where those ancestors came from, where those ancient ancestors came from, our bodies are actually even physically built to do different things, which is kind of amazing. If you're European, you can digest milk. It doesn't mean that everyone should drink milk or that no one should drink milk. It's actually a way that people in Europe's bodies changed. However, if your ancestors came from Japan, you're built to specially digest seaweed. There were bacterium in, our, in their guts that actually stole genetic material from seaweed that allowed them to better break them down. 
And more basically, depending on where people were from, they ate different things. Those 40,000-year-old humans that might have been North America, they weren't eating dates, but they definitely were in Iraq and Israel at that time, which of course weren't Iraq and Israel in the greater Middle East, let's say. So it's when you say we should eat like paleo humans, the questions are, well, from where? Because some places they were eating grains and some places they weren't. So from where and from when? Because the diets we were eating changed over time. Are we talking two million year old paleo? Or are we talking only 12,000 year old paleo? So the term, fine, cut your carbs. I don't care, that's a whole other talk. <laughs> but the term and the theory isn't really based in the science of who we, who we are as humans. One of the most amazing things about human beings, one of the reasons that we've become these evolutionary successes is that our diets are versatile. That in no matter what environment we're in, there is probably something that we can eat and turn to energy. And that in itself is really rare. Now, in a sort of broader scientific way, these discoveries are important because there is sort of a darker vein to these theories about why Neanderthals died out. The biggest theory was, well, they were meat eaters and they couldn't adapt as well as Homo sapiens, so that's why they died out. That was the leading theory up until about 15 years ago. And tied into that was the ideas of being primitive, that the Neanderthals died out because somehow they weren't as good as Homo sapiens. They weren't the best, they only ate meat, they were themselves animals, whereas we were going to become humans. And that, to me, smacks of a little bit of ancient xenophobia. <laughs> That's looking at that through modern eyes and using language in which we talk about contemporary cultures that we think are less than us for one reason or another. But all the modern science is now saying, no, Neanderthals and Homo sapiens basically ate the same sort of diversified diets. It wasn't meat heavy, it wasn't animalistic, it wasn't primitive. They were cooking with fire, they were making all these leaps and bounds um, at the same time, these two different um, genetic cultures. So I think it's also important to talk about these things too because it's like, in my mind, it's like walking through that old school part of the American Museum of Natural History with all those, yeah, you know the one I'm talking about, all those like, not good, but some reason they don't get rid of them, depictions, outdated depictions of other people. We're doing the same thing with our own ancient history. So I guess lessons learned is the premise upon the paleo diet doesn't make any sense. And love your Neanderthal brothers because they're inside of us. We have a lot of Neanderthal DNA. That's it for me. Thank you. Welcome back, everybody. It is my pleasure to introduce our very special guest, Kim Warsham. She is an expert. I should have asked you for a more official title, but you are a toilet expert. But you actually, you work for a company that? Oh, I work for many companies. So I do a water nonprofit, and I have my own company I'll talk about in my slides. And you've traveled all over the world to both research people's sewage systems and help them to set up better ones. Is that correct? That's true. And she teaches at the Brooklyn Brainery. Um, so if you ever see one of her classes come up, get on it. And also, we'll include your next one in our next MSG uh, email blast, too. So warm welcome to Kim. Hi, guys. All right, guys, are you excited to talk about toilets for a little bit with me? I mean, come on. Are we really excited about toilets? We're going to talk about toilets. OK. 
So you're probably wondering who I am because I'm excited about toilets. So I'm Kim, that's me right there. Um, and I'm a water and sanitation expert. So what that means is I go to developing countries and I try to get people access to clean water and access to safe sanitation. I call it toilets, to it's a lot easier to say toilets and sanitation and it's a lot more fun to say. So I decided I like talking about toilets so much um, that I would start my own startup called Flush. That's my company, Flush. It's an acronym. It's facilitated learning for universal sanitation and hygiene. You don't have to remember that, just remember Flush. And basically what I do, kind of what Sarah said, is I try to teach people about toilets and sanitation in different ways um, to get them, I call it toilet woke, uh, so that you can learn about you know, appreciating your toilet, appreciating your sewer system, why everyone in the world should have a bidet. Well, okay, not everyone in the world, but like everyone here should have a bidet. Um, and that's a class, so I won't go into that right now. And I also love dogs, and that's my little dog, Chloe, and she is the mascot of Flush. That's my little logo. So I sometimes have dogs in my pictures. But today we're going to go a little bit into the history of toilets. I do this as a course at the Brooklyn Brainery, so this is going to be a much faster version than what I usually do. What I've decided is kind of give you five overarching themes of the history of toilets that I found while I've done my research. Um, and it starts with why we have toilets. So we have toilets because if you, well, okay, so if you lived in like a deserted island by yourself and you decided to take a shit on the field by yourself, that's fine because you could eat your own poo if you really wanted to. I'm not saying you should, but you could. Uh, but if you start having a family and friends and more people around you, that's when things get weird because you start spreading disease. Who here has had food poisoning? Round of applause if you've had food poisoning, please. Yeah, you've probably eaten someone's poo. So a lot of food poisoning is because you've, someone has contaminated something you've eaten or drunk because they didn't wash their hands after they went to the bathroom or maybe they pooed on your food or something like that. So. Toilets really started showing up in history about 5,000 years ago, which is around the time when hunter-gatherers did start settling down. So it's kind of a nice little connection with Sarah's conversation there. Um, so you start seeing in like Scotland's uh, places where people started settling down, and in the Indus Valley uh, between Pakistan and India, you start seeing civilizations when they start becoming more agrarian, putting in toilets in their communities when they're more connected uh, or when they're living closer together. So you start seeing that the more people you get, the more likely you're gonna have toilets. And it's interesting because they found, they found toilets in southern Vietnam and they realized that the, the period that they found toilets in southern Vietnam was around the same time again as when you start seeing uh, the Southeast Asian area starting to settle down away from nomadic lifestyles. Now, you move a little fast forward into like the late 1800s and we start seeing some other interesting things about why we have toilets. Uh, so I don't know if you know this, but before like 1880, it was really dangerous to live in a city, right? Because you'd probably die. Uh, London has the famous cholera outbreaks where lots of people died. Uh, here we had yellow fevers and we had other major diseases. It was really dangerous to live in a city because you'd probably get some kind of diarrheal disease and, and shit out, basically. Um, <laughs> but then in the, 18, in the like 1880s, 1850s, I know 
it's all gross. We're talking about toilets. Um, but around the 1850s, 1880s when, is when you start seeing um, urban places like London and Frankfurt and Paris and Brooklyn um, start developing sewer systems in urban settings, saying we need to get the shit out of the way and move somewhere not where we're sleeping and not where we're drinking our water. And you start getting sewer systems. Um, and then you start seeing once sewer systems start getting installed in civilizations, uh, civilizations in urban settings really start booming because it's no longer dangerous to live there. You're not going to die from diarrhea as easily. Um, so that's the first theme. The second theme is toilets are not always for everybody. So if you're rich, you probably have always had a toilet for the last 5,000 years. If you're not, you're probably going outside. So. Um, I've taken some pictures of different points in time where rich people had toilets. This is something called a garderobe. It's on a castle and or an abbey, which were often very uh, wealthy places. Uh, and you see here is a little hole because it's a little outhouse that kind of is developed out on the castle. Um, and then if you go, so this is like medieval London uh, or whatever, medieval Europe. And around this time, you have everyone else going outside. You've got plagues. You've got people in the fields getting sick, uh, not living very long. And then you jump forward into the Victorian era where they were trying to get a little fancier. So they have this nice thing called a closet stool, <laughs> uh, where it, it is literally a cabinet that you shit in. And this is a nice velvety seat. Uh, and a, not exactly something that a baker would necessarily have in their house. I believe this was Queen Elizabeth's, um, or maybe not Queen Elizabeth's, she's a little old, but someone, someone rich had it. And then you go to the Guggenheim nowadays, you can go see this really fancy toilet. Everyone else has gone outside, and this is still the case in the world today. So you have people in San Francisco who are homeless going outside because they don't have access to toilets. You have people in India who are poor who don't have access to toilets and go outside. So it's never been toilets for everyone, really, except for a few rare civilizations in history, um, which is something that you can bear in mind when you think about your privilege, I guess. <laughs> you see, I said toilet woke, so you have to be a little woke. Um, another theme is that toilet history has never been quite very linear. So uh, much like my career, uh, it has never gone straight and linear. It is much more like this jumbled mess, uh, which makes me cry at night, but also makes the history of toilet cry at night a little bit as well. Um, if you look at this, this is ancient Greece, and you can see it kind of looks like a bathroom, right? Uh, this was, you know, a couple thousand years ago. Um, so basically what happened is like, uh, I'm trying to think of how many thousands of years ago, like 3,000 years ago, uh, you start seeing civilized, like um, rich people having toilets, like palaces, and Rome was really good at implementing toilets throughout their entire uh, civilization. However, when the toilet, when the toilet, when the Rome Empire fell, um, basically all of Europe said, well, fuck you, Rome, we're going to go shit outside again because that sounds like a great idea. So we went backwards for quite a long time, for a couple hundreds of years, because we decided we didn't want to do what the Romans did, uh, which was just to use uh, massly implemented toilet systems, like public baths. And then you have things like this, which is um, soldiers during the war who decided that instead of having toilets, they would just take a pole, like a shit pole, and shit together along uh, a lovely ravine 
uh, which is very sanitary. So this is this is less than 100 years ago. So people often are like, oh, we've had toilets for a long time. Not really. Um, toilets really only became more popular in the US after World War I, World War II. So a lot of places still use outhouses, which are fine. Some of them are not really outhouses, and they just kind of go into a river or something like that. Um, so again, not linear history at all. The fourth theme is where I, my career starts coming in, where toilets could always be much better. So you have toilets in the past were always kind of weird. Maybe they would backfire and like poo would explode on you. That was like in the 1500s, 1600s if someone tried to build something like that. Or you have toilets in like the 1700s, which just couldn't quite flush. Um, or maybe they just didn't have water. And you kind of zoom forward to modern history, and toilets could still be much better. A lot of the times, toilets are just holes in the ground, like this. This is a modern toilet. So I go to work in Ghana sometimes for my day job, and um, which is actually about water. So I work in water, but everyone knows I love toilets, so they always decide to show me the worst toilets in the community. Uh, and this is in Western Ghana, and this is a modern toilet at a school. There's two, so you can share it with a friend. And this basically is where the toilet is, and this is erosion. So if there's a really big rainstorm in Western Ghana, your shit's gonna go everywhere. Um, and this is a problem in a lot of places. Alabama, they have issues with hookworm because their sewer systems go out in their front lawns. Um, and we also have issues with public access, which is why California had one of the largest hepatitis A outbreaks in modern history about two years ago, because people who are poor don't have access to public toilets, because for some reason Americans think that public toilets are so not cool. So we don't have them, which means people go outside, um, and then you get hepatitis A. Not a fun disease. Who's ever had hepatitis A? <laughs> right, it's not very fashionable. So we need to have more public toilets in the world. Um, and then similarly, we need to be better users. And this has always been the case as well. Uh, someone may have misused a toilet back in the day. They found some really funny things in old cesspits uh, that I won't go into, but they're, they're pretty funky stuff. Um, sometimes people have drowned in cesspits because they were doing some, uh, I don't know, philandering, I guess, in cesspits. But we too are also culprits of doing bad things in toilets. Um, we have this idea that we can just flush anything down the toilet, um, and this has been the case for since we started getting sewers. So we put all kinds of things, um, which means we get something called fatbergs. Who's heard of fatbergs? You can clap if you've heard of fatbergs. Yeah, they're, they're, they're really gross. Um, basically, a fatberg is 90% oil and 10% wet wipes, and they basically block out our sewer systems like an artery and give our sewer systems a heart attack. Um, why is this? Because wet wipes are the devil, and they're not flushable ever. So they say flushable. They really should never say flushable. This is my educative thing for you guys. Never use wet wipes unless you're going to put them in the trash can, please, for the love of God because wet wipes aren't meant to be flushed, specifically because they're made to withstand wetness. So toilet paper disintegrates when it gets wet, right? Um, wet wipes are made out of cotton and are supposed to be wet, which means that they're not going to disintegrate, they're really sturdy, and they're pretty absorbent. So when they get into our sewer system, 
and they meet some friends called oil or fat that perhaps you might have accidentally poured down the sink. They decide to throw a party with all of their friends, and then you get this fatberg thing. And it costs millions of dollars to, to get rid of these fatbergs. And fatbergs are relatively new. So we've always kind of had people putting oil down sewer systems since we've had sewer systems, which isn't a great thing. But fatbergs only really started becoming a problem in urban centers in about 2010. So only about nine years ago did we start seeing fatbergs because we decided flat wet wipes were cool. Um, and beforehand, you know, we just flushed toilet paper like a champ, and that was about it. But you start putting wet wipes on the toilet, and then you start getting these fatbergs, which again, like, poor London has had like several, and they've just spent hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of dollars cleaning out these fatbergs. They're like the size of buses. You know, like two buses in your sewer system where, you know, the water's just not going very far. It's really gross. Um, not a fan. And I feel really bad for the guy in this picture who actually has to clean it up. Because um, you know he's not getting paid overtime for that. Um, and he might get sick. So please, for the love of God, don't use wet wipes. That's, those are the five themes of the history of toilets. But there's two other things I have to tell you before I get off the stage. Um, the first one is Romans were gross. So they were great implementers of public toilets, right? So they were, they were great all over the Roman Empire. You start seeing public baths, but they were nasty ass. Partly because of this thing, which I can't remember the Roman term for, or Latin term for this thing, but it's a, it's a poo sponge stick. Um, <laughs> and, and the best thing is that it's a public poo sponge stick. So when you're in a public bath, you'd have one of these sponges and you're hanging out with Julius on the toilet um, and you're talking about basketball or whatever it is you talk about back then. And you use it to wipe yourself and you would bend down to a little stream and clean it up and hand it to your friend. Public toilet paper, really nasty. So Romans were really good at putting in infrastructure, but not quite good at that whole behavioral thing or making things clean. So when everyone's always like, oh, the Romans, they were so advanced. I'm like, they were, they were nasty. They were nasty guys. Um, and the last piece is Thomas Crapper comes up a lot. When people ask me questions about Thomas Crapper, I roll my eyes. Uh, no, Thomas Crapper did not invent toilets. Uh, they were invented about 400 years before Thomas Crapper. What Thomas Crapper, who Thomas Crapper was rather, not what. Uh, he was a very good marketer. So he basically found this thing called like a toilet and he said that's really cool and it was called a crapper before Thomas Crapper existed just like FYI so he was like Thomas my name's Thomas Crapper and like there's a thing called a crapper and there's some pretty cool patents out there and well I guess I should make some money out of it so he decided to make a really great marketing scheme to basically get all of England to buy Thomas Crapper toilets and they were nice and they were pretty, but his big secret was mass production and kind of licensing his name off to different manufacturers to make toilets. So before anyone else starts asking you about like Thomas Crapper, oh yeah, you know, he's the father of toilets. He is not. He was just like the first capitalistic toilet man in the world. <laughs> and with that, that's, that's my spiel about the history of toilets. So I do teach a class at the Brooklyn Brainery. I don't have any s scheduled up right now, but if you do email them and ask for the class, it usually brings demand and I can put a class up. I'm always happy to do it. I also have other classes because I love talking about all things toilets. I have a bidet class, I have a sewer class, I have one about infectious diseases. If you really wanna talk about like 
the bubonic plague, we can talk about that. So if you are interested in learning more about toilets or even curious about things I'm not talking about, maybe like environmental degradation or equity or architecture, I could do those too. You just email me. Email me at my flushwash.org. That's again Chloe. Say hi to Chloe, guys. Um, so yeah, just ask me, and I'm more than happy to put an event out there for you guys and teach you more about the vast information we have out there about toilets and get you more toilet woke. And with that, I believe we have a 10-minute break so you can go get some alcohol, and I strongly recommend you getting alcohol because it's going to get pretty funky when um, Soma comes up and talks about microbiomes. So... Thank you guys for listening. You guys hate drinking tonight. This is terrifying. Is it all just kombucha? Kombucha 24-7? Who's drinking kombucha? Show of applause. <laughs> Do you drink it because it's healthy? You drink it because it tastes nice? All right. That's fine. That's fine. Don't drink it because it's healthy. We'll talk about why. All right. So uh, I am here to talk about the microbiome. <laughs> right, so that just means all the bacteria that's up inside of you. I mean, it's also stuff that's not bacteria, but it's mostly bacteria, so everyone's like, yeah, yeah, it's just bacteria. So tonight, we're just gonna say, yeah, yeah, it's just bacteria. So microbiome, just bacteria. Um, so when you say microbiome, we actually have all kinds of different microbiomes, and the microbiome in general is everywhere from, we usually think of it being in your gut, it's also on your skin, it's in your throat, like it's everywhere that stuff exists in your body. Um, you can kind of shove a few bacteria in there. But when we think about the microbiome, we usually just think about the gut, which specifically, I'm gonna say stomach, I predict a lot, um, but it's really just the large intestine. Um, that's where everything lives. Um, these are actual photographs of little <laughs> colorful bacteria. Um, so it's specifically the large intestine because there is bacteria in the small intestine, but it's a little bit more intensive an environment. Um, so it's not as friendly to bacteria, whereas a large intestine is like party city. Everyone goes there, they hang out, they have a real good time. And we're gonna talk about that good time that they have. So who here is made up of cells? <laughs> yes, yeah, so uh, this is a picture of human cells. And if you were to go to scientists and say, how many human cells are in the body? They would all say, and they would just all give you different numbers. But we're gonna go with the 40 trillion cells make up the human body. People used to say it was like 10, but now they've settled on like about 37 because they like to get pretty specific. Um, who here has bacteria in their bodies? <laughs> yes, it's true. Um, you have a lot of bacteria in your bodies. Based on who's doing the measuring, it could be like 20 trillion or it could be like 100 trillion. So no one's really sure. People are really bad at measuring like how much bacteria in your bodies, how many cells are in your body, stuff like that. But generally speaking, for every cell that you have in your body, it has a bacteria friend or maybe a few bacteria friends. Um, if you took all the bacteria out, it would be like a big lump. It's, it's an exciting time, right? Um, so in your body, um, you are living with all of these bacteria. And so why are these bacteria important? Why do we care? And if for no other reason, then there's just so many of them. There's so many of them, right? Like for every cell you have, let's say there are two different bacteria cells. 
Um, inside of you, there is just one you, but there are about a thousand species of bacteria. It could, again, really bad at measuring, could just be a few hundred, could be over a thousand. Um, humans have 20,000 genes. If we go through all of these species of bacteria, we're talking about four to 20 million genes. So there's like a ton of action going on in your body that is not like your action, your body. It's, I mean, bacteria rules everything around us, I guess. So why do we care besides the fact that there's just so much to our microbiome? Well, if you read pop science articles, you know that the microbiome is related to literally every problem you have as a human being or good thing that you have as a human being. <laughs> um, so things like obesity, uh, inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, diabetes, beyond things that are more physical, they're also mental things like depression, schizophrenia, autism, like literally everything a study has been published about how it is related to your gastrointestinal tract and specifically your microbiome. So we're gonna spend some time touching on uh, a decent number of these uh, topics and about how the microbiome comes to be and how we can adjust it or how it will hurt us or how we can be friends with it or whatever. So we'll start off with where does this microbiome come from? How do all these bacteria come to live in our gut? So it turns out uh, that when you are a little baby and you're in like the gentle white box called your mom, um, it's a pretty sterile environment. It's a pretty sterile environment and you don't actually have like a huge crazy microbiome. It's only once you pop out of your mom <laughs> and then are introduced to all of the microbes of the world that you actually gain a microbiome. So your microbiome is not something that you were born with. It is not something that is from you originally. You are actually colonized by all of the microbes that live in the world around you. <laughs> and this starts when you are born. And I mean literally the act of being born crafts your microbiome. So if you are delivered, uh, like not even just like the hospital room, like the actual act of being born. So if you are born uh, as a vaginal birth, you get exposed to certain kinds of bacteria, uh, like a lactobacillus um, from the vaginal canal. If you are born via C-section, you get a lot of uh, bacteria that's more related to skin, so stuff like staph and things like that. Um, and those are the things that first start to colonize your gastrointestinal tract. So one year after you're born, scientists can look at your microbiome inside of your little baby gut and figure out whether you were born by a C-section or whether you were born uh, through a vaginal birth. If you are breastfed for the first year of your life, um, there's less of a difference. It's a little bit more pushed together. And when I read this, I'm just like, is this some sort of uh, like nonsense where they're like, working moms are terrible, everyone has to like, no one's allowed to have a C-section and no one, everyone has to breastfeed all the time. Um, I mean, maybe it is, who knows? But like that's, we'll talk about how bad all the science is later, but let's just go with it. Let's just say that once you are born a year later, someone can kind of poke you and figure out exactly how you were born. Um, by the age of about three, your microbiome um, in your gut is kind of set up. Uh, it's basically because your diet, if for the rest of your life you're gonna be eating chicken tenders and plain white rice. Um, your diet's basically set by the time you're three, you're eating real grown-up food, and your body's just like, yeah, that seems like a reasonable setup. Like, this is the mix of bacteria that we want. 
And like you, your microbiome can change over time, but generally speaking, like if you go on antibiotics, like if you have like a short change in diet, um, it will shift your microbiome for a while, but give it like two months, give it like a year, your microbiome will kind of gravitate back to where it was. So it's remarkably stable over time. Um, it's kind of difficult to have a shift in the bacteria that is in your gut. So now that we know where this bacteria comes from, which is like just the world around us, um, what does it do while it's in there? Like, does this bacteria have a job? So I was of the thought that like literally everything in your body has a job to do. Has anyone seen cells at work? No? Okay, well it's a show about what cells do in your body. I've only watched one episode, but it's kind of fun. Um, these are red blood cells delivering oxygen. So I, I was of the point of view that if something's in your body, it has a job, it's, it's doing something for you. So I was like, oh, we got bacteria in our gut. That's just like when dinosaurs or chickens or whatever swallow rocks to help digest things. Is that an urban legend? I don't know. <laughs> so I was like, they're there for a reason. Um, but, but when you do studies of the way the microbiome is set up, the way you do these studies generally is with something called germ-free mice, which are mice that do not have germs. correct. <laughs> so <laughs> they, they come out of a sterile environment um, and they basically don't have a microbiome in their gut. There's just, it's just digested food, which sounds really boring once you know there are like a thousand different species of bacteria inside of us. So these germ-free mice, what these germ-free mice do is they just live life. And that's, that's pretty much it. Like, they don't die. They don't just roll over. They're like, oh, I was born, but I didn't get bacteria, so I'm going to die. So I'm going to assume that because germ-free mice are able to live without bacteria in their gut, if somehow a human being was born and they didn't have bacteria in their gut and we, like, locked them away in a sterile closet forever, um, they'd be able to live without bacteria in their gut. I haven't done that to somebody, <laughs> but I'm sure, it, I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it's fine. But seeing as how we do have bacteria in our guts, um, there's kind of a spectrum of things that they can do. So at its simplest, what the bacteria in our guts do um, is they turn our large intestine into a big fermentation chamber. Fermenting is really just like bacteria and yeast eating things, and that's pretty much all bacteria and yeast do. I mean, that's all anybody does, really, right? So. What they do is there's like starches or carbohydrates or proteins or whatever floating around um, in our large intestine and the bacteria just eat it, break it down into smaller compounds and alternate compounds. And then maybe our body can use those or maybe it's just they're just doing their thing and our body's like, yeah, keep doing that thing. We don't really care. It doesn't negatively affect us. So that's on the simple side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum, these bacteria might just control literally everything about us. Um, they sit on our shoulders and they pull the strings and they tell us what to do all the time. P.S. No one really knows how they do this if they do happen to do it. There's like, people are like, oh, here are the ways that it might happen. And it's a list of like 15 things. And you're like, that seems reasonable. I'm sure they do all of those. So you're like, I'm not controlled by bacteria. That's the most absurd thing I've ever heard. And I'm like, let me tell you about some mice. Here's a fun story. So, scientists took two mice, not two mice, two types of mice, let's say mouse type A, mouse type B, and said, you know what, you got too many germs. We're going to make germ-free versions of these mice. 
germ-free mouse type A, germ-free mouse type B. And, you know, they're just living their lives, doing their thing. All these mice act a little bit differently. Um, all of mouse type A, they all kind of act the same because they're all related mice that do their thing. But when you take away all of their microbiome, they start acting differently. So the germ-free versions of mice will act differently from the original versions of mice. And so then what they did was they said, hey, let's take some of this, this fecal matter, let's do a fecal transplant from the normal mice into the germ-free mice. So we're going to fill their intestinal tract, which previously had no germs, with some germs. And you know what happened in these mice? They started acting like normal mice. So what they did was they basically transplanted the personality of these normal mice into the germ-free mice just by shoveling their poop on over. And you say, that's a crazy story, and I say, not done yet. <laughs> so mouse type A, mouse type B, get that fecal transplant once again, but instead of taking it from mouse type A to the germ-free mouse type A, they switched it. And they said, we're going to give you your neighbor's poop instead of your friend's poop. And they're like, oh, this is crazy. And you know what happens? These germ-free mice suddenly start acting like the mouse that they got their poop from. So it's not that they just suddenly got a microbiome and started acting normal. It's that they started acting like the microbiome of the mouse that they got their microbiome from. So that's crazy. That microbiome is controlling their little mouse brains. Um, and so what does this really mean? I don't know, but I think, I think it means <laughs> that if, if you steal someone's poop, you can become them. <laughs> so if we have any script writers here or anything, just go nuts. Just, yeah, associate producer right here. It'll be great. It'll be great. And here's, I'll tell you later about how to do a fecal transplant. It's not really that bad. <laughs> okay, so since we've talked about uh, mice being different, let's talk about people being different. So we have hundreds and hundreds of different bacteria that are inside of us. So whenever scientists study um, the kind of microbiome that's inside of us, they're not like this specific species and this specific strain and this specific species. They're just like, oh yeah, we got a bunch of groups of bacteria and we got like a ton of different groups. There, there are a million of them. This is not like an exhaustive list. Um, some of these are like the popular ones. Some of these are not the popular ones. But the idea is that in the gut, you can't just measure like, well, you can measure specific bacteria, but it's too much work. So scientists are like, we're just going to put these into groups. And when we talk about like, oh, such and such kind of bacteria makes you depressed or such and such kind of bacteria is more prevalent in like schizophrenic mice or something like that. Um, you talk about groups of bacteria, not specific bacteria. So when I start to talk about these different groups, um, know that it's not specific bacteria. It's a ton of different ones are in each one of these families. So, all right, let's say you are a scientist and you want to study something like people who uh, are depressed or you want to study people with autism or you want to study people with schizophrenia. How do you study people um, with these, these medical issues? And if you said, well, clearly the way to, to study a depressed human being is to make a depressed mouse or an autistic mouse or a schizophrenic mouse, um, 
And you're like, what is a schizophrenic mouse? And I'm like, I read this study and I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, so yeah, this is, this is what science does. Um, science is terrible when it comes to this stuff. Like we've been really jazzed about microbiome for a while and like it's getting better, but we'll talk about all of these studies and they're generally terrible. But here's some studies that are maybe not the worst studies or at least they're interesting. So uh, pseudo 2004, um, this mouse, germ-free mouse, just living its life, right? Living its normal germ-free life. What they do is they give it a little stress, a little stressor, you know, like wake up, wake up, and it freaks out. That germ-free mouse does not know how to deal with stress. It's having a terrible stress response. Uh, the stress hormones are just like shooting out of its body. And then they say, germ-free mouse, I got a treat for you. It's called a fecal transplant. <laughs> so we are gonna give you a fecal transplant to give you the microbiome of a normal mouse. And then they stress the mouse again and its stress response is actually lower. So if you lived your life having no germs, if you lived in a sterile environment, I mean, it seems like it'd be pretty boring, but you'd also probably stress out pretty easily. Um, somehow, the microbiome of this mouse is able to modulate the stress response uh, that goes on when an external stressor, not even food-related, is applied to this mouse. So it seems pretty crazy. Uh, that stress can be modulated by your gut, but if you're a mouse, stress can be modulated by your gut. Thank God we were born into a world with germs. So, uh, Jen, 2016, took a uh, germ-free mouse and was doing some reading and heard that people with a major depressive disorder, MDD, uh, had a certain group of, uh, certain groups of bacteria were higher inside of people's microbiomes that had MDD. And they said, okay, Let's, uh, let's take some of this, which they call depressive microbiota in the paper, and we'll put it in this germ-free mouse, and it made a depressed mouse. What's a depressed mouse? Not sure. Um, P.S. This fecal transplant totally came from people. It didn't come from mice. Next year, they're like, let's up this game. Let's up this game. We're going to take a mouse that, an autistic mouse, which, what is an autistic mouse? They're like, oh, we've messed around with some stuff and then it does these things and it's close enough. And you're like, is that really close enough? I'll say no, but he says yes. <laughs> so what they did was they were like, okay, we have this mouse and we are gonna just stick a, a different kind of bacteria inside of it and then the autism went away. So we're totally gonna cure autism in people. And you're like, I don't know if it works exactly that way. Um, but yeah, so literally anything that you shove into a mouse, uh, that mouse can just feel just the same way as you. So, like no studies are ever done on people. No studies are ever done on, I mean, we're gonna talk about a few that are kind of, but like it's difficult, right? Um, because what you can do is take these germ-free mice and like put things in them or keep them from having things in them. Whereas for people, you can't like raise a batch of germ-free people, like the ethics committee would never approve of that and it would take way too long. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's much easier to do things on mice and then get a bunch of things published in like, I don't know, the Wall Street Journal or whatever, um, instead of actually doing studies on people. Um, okay. In 2019, oh, this paper came out like two weeks ago? Was this the one that came out two weeks ago? Yeah. So these people um, used, in Belgium, 
pe- a thousand people, over a thousand people, ten fifty four, I think, sent in samples of their microbiome, um, and also filled out like a questionnaire, like how are you feeling? Like, can you run up a hill? Are you s- ever sad? Uh, and it's like they they filled out like a questionnaire, um, and then the people who were doing the study, they analyzed like people's feelings. And then they looked at all of the gut flora um, that was inside of them. And then they decided, all right, we found these two gut flora that are associated with depression. So depressed people have uh, more or less of these specific bacterial groups inside of them. And some people were really excited about this because they're like, it's a study on people. It's got a thousand people in it. It sounds like a really good study. Uh, But it turns out that like, if you were looking at, you remember how I made that list of all the different bacterial groups? And that was like not a very complete list at all. Like let's say we got like 40 different bacterial groups. When you do a lot of science stuff, the way that it works to say like I've found something uh, is you do an analysis and you're like, what's the chance that this just randomly happened? And then you're like, oh, was this under like 5% chance or something like that? And you're like, oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty, yeah, this is real. This is real because there's like a pretty low chance that maybe it happened. But if you're looking at 50 different, in, okay, so if you're looking at just like one group of bacteria and you're like 5% chance that I'm screwing this up, oh, it looks good, great, it's good. But if you're looking at 40 different things that are independent uh, and they each have a 5% chance, you're going to find something that correlates somewhere. Uh, So a lot of people were shitting on this study um, for not necessarily being as bright, for not necessarily being uh, as as good as it could have been. So who knows? Who knows? Um, But generally speaking, mice are not people. So when you look at studies, everything is terrible. Everything is terrible. Um, But there's one time when it's actually pretty simple to analyze things, uh, and that's when you actually have a problem in your gut that has to do with like stuff actually happening in your gut um, instead of like the way that you're feeling. So dysbiosis means uh, basically you have an imbalance in your microbiome. Um, So maybe like a bunch of bacteria died and then some other ones grew in the niche or there's just like an imbalance. Something that should be in a low concentration is a high concentration. Your body doesn't know how to deal with it. There's inflammation, there's all kinds of problems happening. And this is kind of the root of a ton of different diseases. Um, a lot of different gut-related diseases, uh, like inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis, uh, things like metabolic syndrome, uh, diabetes, those are kind of on on the way of this. Not everything is always like 100%, this is exactly how it works, because the gut is still a mystery. Um, But for a lot of the more gut-related medical issues, uh, you do know that it is something going on with your your flora in there. And you say, well, I want to fix it. So I'm going to drink kombucha. It's going to be great, right? I got some probiotics there. I'm eat some kimchi. I'm going to take some pills. Because all you're doing is, right, you're like, oh, I got to fix my floor. I got to fix my microbiome. I'm going to put some more microbiome in there. It's going to be great, right? Because probiotics are just packaged up uh, bacteria that you eat, and then they go in your large intestine. They have a good, good time, right? Sounds wonderful, except, except. Would you just go into a drugstore and be like, give me that one and that one and this one, and I'm just going to eat those pills because they, they're, they're medicine and I feel sick. And that's exactly what you're doing when you just take probiotics. Because, like, remember that big, long list of the different things that could be in your body? 
Which one of those are you picking? Why are you picking those? You're not. You're just like, yeah, yeah, whatever you'll sell me, it sounds healthy. Oh, it's bacteria that's in a pill? Uh, yeah, sign me up, sign me up. The two groups of bacteria uh, that they put in there, lactobacillus and this thing that used to be lactobacillus until like 1986 or something. Um, do you know why these are the two different groups that are in most probiotics? It's because they're really easy to grow. So they're like, ah, oh, we got to make some money, and everyone wants to be healthy. So they're just they're going to eat whatever pills we want. Um, so it's kind of tough to <laughs> endorse probiotics, um, but we'll talk about some studies a little bit later that actually show that they work or they don't work. But they've been around for a long time. Uh, the term probiotic is from about 1964, I think. Uh, but in 1904, this Russian scientist who, who eventually won a, a Nobel Prize, um, Eli Metchnikoff, he decided, he, he gave a speech in France, he gave a talk, and he was like, you know what, I was looking at some milk the other day, and there's some bad bacteria in there. And that bad bacteria was just going to make that milk so bad. But you know what happened? Is this other bacteria rolled up, this lactobacillus, and it said, get out of here, bad bacteria. I'm going to make this into yogurt. And it turned into yogurt. And guess what? You can eat yogurt. It's not poisonous. It's not sour, bad milk. He's like, you know what? I bet our bodies are just the same. I bet the inside of our bodies, we have all this bad bacteria that's trying to like rot us out from the inside. And if only we turned our insides into yogurt by drinking yogurt and eating lactobacillus, we would be super healthy and it would be amazing. And the world was like, holy shit, this guy's a genius. And they lost their minds, and everyone started eating yogurt. Um, and the guy who invented Kellogg's cornflakes, Kellogg, he was all about yogurt, and he made people eat a pint a day. Uh, he was real jazzed on it. So people had been obsessed with lactobacillus as probiotic to cure things forever. Someone in 1910 was like, oh, it cures depression. It's great. But I forget their name. Um, he was specifically all about Bulgarian yogurt. He was just like, this is the best yogurt. You can find it in stores. Uh, it'll, it'll be great. You'll live forever. Unlike that guy. He ended up dying one day. Um, so this is my favorite titled, this is not my favorite titled science paper ever, um, but probiotics and gastroenterology, how pro is the evidence in adults? And you're like, that, that is not the best pun ever. And he's like, you know what else is terrible is all of the studies about probiotics. Um, so this is my favorite kind of study where you go and you grab a bunch of other studies and you take all the ones that meet certain criteria and then you basically judge them. And so he used this thing called GRADE. I don't know what it stands for, but you grade all of the studies. And they basically all start at a high rating. And then every time they fuck up, it goes down. It goes down. It goes down. And so you probably can't see this, but literally everything is low. There's like hun hundreds, if not thousands of studies up here. Um, and they're all marked as low quality, low quality, low quality. A few moderate quality, like one high quality, two high quality. Yeah, it goes down to very low. So low is not literally the worst score. You get a D, you pass the class. Um, so basically he's like, look, when studies about probiotics come out, they're all so shitty that you just can't learn anything from them. There's a few that are good, but not very many. Um, oh, and I forgot, here's the most important part. <laughs> he has a history. I was trying to Google him to send him an email to be like, this is a real fun study to read. Uh, he doesn't have email because he's like an old guy that lives in California. But he publishes other papers such as Elemental Diets, Facts and Fantasies, 
which opens with a vignette of Sherlock Holmes in a hospital for Crohn's disease. And then another one called Parental Nutrition is it ontologically logical. So this guy rules. He's amazing. <laughs> but he doesn't have email. Uh, so here's what he says. If you have ulcerative colitis, maybe there's weak evidence um, that probiotics will help you. If, uh, if you have, so Clostridium uh, difficile CDI uh, is like a, an imbalance in your gut. And basically, if you're having an active outbreak of this imbalance, probiotics are not going to help you. But if you are not having an outbreak and you take probiotics, it will help you not have an outbreak in the future. Uh, if you have ulcers uh, and you need to take antibiotics in order to make your ulcer bacteria go away, uh, if you take probiotics at the same time you are taking antibiotics, it will help you. Questionable as to why it works. Uh, the probiotics might just make you not have as negative of a reaction to the antibiotics, so you're able to actually finish your entire schedule of antibiotics. Uh, and everything else, nope, 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 nope. Uh, pancreatitis, liver disease, traveler's diarrhea, like none of, none of those things are good. Uh, which gets us to, to the magic, because you're like, I don't want probiotics, I want something that works. And I'm like, fecal transplants, that's for you. It's going to be great. Um, so you take a sample from a good colon, put it in your bad colon, bam, life is good. And you say, I don't know if I want to do that. It seems a little intimate. And I say, don't worry, because if you do it orally, it works just about as good. <laughs> just, you know, dehydrate it, make some pills. It's fine. Your life is miserable. This will make you happy. It's going to be great. Poop pills. It's medicine. So another time that maybe, maybe uh, microbiota and fecal transplants will work for you is if you have some insulin-related problems, um, so things like diabetes. Uh, take a bunch of guys, uh, give them fecal transplants six months later. I don't have it. Six weeks later. Oh, that's not very long. Six weeks later. Um, after getting a fecal transplant, their insulin response was better than it had been beforehand. Granted, we've talked about the fact that uh, if you change your uh, microbiome, it will go back eventually. Maybe it'll take two years, maybe it'll take less time. So you might have to take those poop pills all the time, um, but there is some evidence to suggest that if you have insulin-related problems, a uh, fecal transplant might work for you, might kind of fix up uh, your microbiome. But we've talked a lot about fixing up your microbiome. What about destroying it? So antibiotics, the job of antibiotics is just to fuck things up. Uh, and that's what they do. So antibiotics roll into your body and they're just like, I'm going to kill everything. That's not necessarily true. I take it back. Broad spectrum antibiotics roll into your body and they're like, I'm going to kill everything. Narrow spectrum antibiotics are like, I'm going to really kill the hell out of like some specific stuff. It's going to be great. Um, so when people think that antibiotics are bad for your microbiome because it reduces diversity, and then you say, well, why is reduced diversity bad? And they're like, uh, microbiome? Uh, so no one knows exactly why it's bad, but people like to say it's bad, and maybe we have some proof. So in 2015, a paper came out of Denmark. Uh, a really fun thing you can do in a place with state-sponsored medicine is go get literally everyone's medical records. So everyone in Denmark participated in this study, whether they wanted to <laughs> or not. So they went through everyone's prescriptions, and they said, hey, uh, did you, are you diabetic? And how many prescriptions for antibiotics have you gotten in your life? And it turns out that people who have had 
people with diabetes have had, generally speaking, much more prescribed antibiotics. And these people are like, look, we're not necessarily saying this about gut flora or anything. Maybe it just means that before diabetes is diagnosed, you get sick a lot. Uh, and then you get prescribed antibiotics, and it's only later that you figure this out. But like, I could also say, if I was writing <laughs> for a magazine, I could say antibiotics uh, totally causes diabetes 100% by screwing up your gut flora and your ability to, to process insulin. So let's just say that. Um, it's a good study. It's a good go, go read it. Google it. It'll be good. Um, so the question is, are we killed by taking antibiotics? Is Dr. Mario our number one enemy? No, you're fine. You're going to die if you don't take antibiotics. Just don't worry about it. Uh, but, you know, maybe take some probiotics. It might be a good idea. <coughs> so there's one more way to change your microbiome that we have not talked about yet. And that is called eating food. So <laughs> when you take probiotics, stuff like that, yes, I used to think like probiotics couldn't work because stomach acid was too harsh and it would just destroy everything. But that's not true. Um, when you eat something, bacteria does totally get through your stomach uh, and into your colon, whether it's you eating probiotics or you eating fermented foods with a lot of lactobacillus in it, uh, or whether it's you eating uh, fruits and vegetables that have a lot of bacteria like on their outer surfaces. But on top of that, instead of just introducing new bacteria into your body, different bacteria in your gut like to work on different things. Maybe they like carbohydrates, or maybe they like fiber, or maybe like proteins, or fats, or alcohols, or things like that. So by eating different foods, it's not that you're introducing new things into your microbiome. It's just that you're giving them food that encourages certain kinds uh, of growth or certain groups of bacteria to grow. So for example, uh, these two guys, uh, Bacteriodetes and Firmicutes, they both like fats and protein. Um, whereas Prevotella likes vegetables and complex carbohydrates, and Ruminococcus likes alcohol and polyunsaturated fats. So, if like tonight, I mean, I guess you guys aren't drinking that much, so you're not really going down the uh, Ruminococcus route, but that's fine, that's fine. So, based on your diet, you can kind of be put into different categories. Um, so, this is a paper interpreting uh, Prevotella and bacterioides as biomarkers of diet and lifestyle. And you're saying, look, these people, they eat a lot of vegetables. These people, they eat a lot of fats and proteins. The way that they actually describe this is the Western diet, where you eat literally nothing but like burgers and chicken tenders all the time, <laughs> um, and the rural diet, where you eat other stuff. Um, granted, this isn't actually what it looks like. Um, it's not just like 100% of one bacteria, 100% of another. These are the two major bacteria um, that can kind of get up in high percentages in your gut. The other ones are just kind of kind of mixed in there uh, tertiarily. Um, but it is a mixture of all of these different things. And so the question is like, why should I care? Why does it matter? So generally speaking, in all of the studies that happen, if you have higher levels of the bacteria that are associated with eating proteins and fats, you are more likely to have problems, whether it's like insulin resistance or whether it's something like uh, uh, depression or schizophrenia. I mean, some of these are like mouse studies, so who knows? They're probably all mouse studies, so who knows? Um, but basically, what it boils down to is, 
across a wide swath of the literature, um, the more of the vegetable-associated proteins you have in your body, the healthier you are. Now, I will say that I've given a lot of talks about like crazy things, like fake meats and like eating dicks and like all kinds of things. And this is the first time where I'm like, huh, being a vegetarian sounds actually kind of cool, not because I'm saving the lives of all kinds of innocent animals, which is wonderful, uh, but because I can actually change like a crazy specific thing in my body if I spend a long time working on it. So like I said, your microbiome tends to go back to where it came from unless you make a long concerted effort to change it. So if you did happen to like eat only vegetables for like a week, it's not gonna really see a change in the way that your body works. But if you do it for like months, it might actually start to shift the way that your microbiome operates, which just seems like a fun like body hacking kind of thing, which sounds like a horrible San Francisco thing to say, but it's fine. Um, so now that you've heard all this, you're like, should I go get my microbiome analyzed? Which also sounds like a terrible San Francisco thing to say, but like, who here has done 23andMe? Applause? Oh, like four people? Wow, okay. So um, basically, 23andMe and stuff, it's kind of just trash anyway, and this is even worse trash if you go online and you try to get your microbiome sampled. Um, the way they do sampling is terrible. Um, the way they do analysis is terrible. The way they do like statistical correcting is terrible. And if you send it to like four different places, you'll get four completely different results. Or at least that's what like happened to someone on Vice. I haven't done it. I'm not going <laughs> to spend all that money. Um, so basically, you you shouldn't do it because literally, literally, here are the here are the three things that come out of it. It could be like, yeah, you're like a human being that eats a Western diet. Seems reasonable. Uh, in which case, it'll probably be like, maybe you should eat some more vegetables. Thanks, mom. Uh, or it could be like, you have a terrible, terrible disease that you already knew about, because if you have a terrible disease in your gut, you're already well aware of it. Um, so there's not really much that it can give you other than a slightly lighter wallet and some sort of list of bacteria that's probably not accurate. So lessons learned. Number one, you got a lot of bacterial buddies hiding inside of you. Maybe one to one human cell, bacterial cell. Maybe each one of them has like one to four. It's not one to 10 or one to 200 like we used to think. But still, that's a lot of bacteria. Uh, number two, so probiotics don't really work in healthy people. Fecal transplants probably don't really work very well in healthy people unless you want to absorb someone's soul. Um, but generally <laughs> speaking, like if you want to change your gut flora, the easiest way to do it is probably actually just adjusting your diet. Um, but maybe, you know, people live eating fats and protein, so it's fine. It's fine. Uh, antibiotics can kind of wreak havoc uh, on your uh, microflora, but probiotics is actually maybe the one time that it is possibly useful to take probiotics is when you are taking antibiotics. And finally, if you know someone who is depressed or who has autism or who is schizophrenic and they also happen to be a mouse, Fecal transplant, and you'll be all set. And that is all I have for you tonight. <laughs> <laughs>